Okay, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're still looking at verses 22 and 23 this morning. So <coughs> let's open with uh, prayer. Father God, we thank you so much that we can look into your word and, and be encouraged by it, Lord. And, and uh, this morning we'll see how uh, our salvation is, is the consequence of your wisdom and your power and nothing to do with us, Lord. And, and we just thank you so much for the, the great salvation that you have given us. We do pray as we uh, go through this passage that we'll appreciate you more and more and learn more and more about you. And pray you open our hearts and bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, to get our context, uh, we'll read, <coughs> starting in verse 18 and go through the end of the chapter. And uh, if you don't want to read and just say pass, and we'll, you can skip over. But, uh, Ray, you want to start for us? For the word of the cross is falling to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, <coughs> and the intelligence of the, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For Jews, excuse me, for Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, Jesus Christ crucified to Jews, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those whom has God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How far are we going here? Through the end of the chapter. Okay. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. And because of him you are <coughs> who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay. So last time we met, uh, Paul was commenting on the, the, the general opinion of the world about the gospel and about how foolish they called it, um, but that God makes their wisdom look foolish. And so the, God's foolishness is wiser than the world's wisdom. And the reason is that the world's philosophers cannot answer the basic questions of life. They cannot come up with a, a way to give eternal life. They have no answers, really. They debated all kinds of things but they don't have answers. God does. His plan is successful. And so his plan, which to them looks foolish, actually works and theirs doesn't. And then we began looking at um, verses 22 and 23 last week. We'll pick those up again this morning. It says, For indeed Jews 
ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. So Jews and Gentiles have different issues with the gospel. We looked at the Jews last time. Moses had told the Jews that God was going to raise up a prophet like him. And so that's what they were looking for. The prophet would come, do these great miracles, and as Moses released them from slavery to Egypt, this prophet would release them from the domain of the Russian, uh, or excuse me, not Russian, Roman <laughs> Empire. <laughs> and so that's what they were looking for. And when Christ came along and didn't do that, they stumbled over that because he wasn't what they were expecting. And so this morning we'll look at the other half of this. We'll look at the, the Greeks or the Gentiles. And that's the first thing to look at. If you look in verse 23, it mentions the Greeks. If you look in verse 24, or excuse me, 22, it says Greeks. 23, it says Gentiles, and 24, it says Greeks again. So, you know, in, in biblical terms, there's two races. There's the Jews, and then there's everybody else. We're all Gentiles. But they, the Gentiles tended to differentiate themselves a little bit. The Greeks were the sophisticated ones, and everybody else was barbarians. So you can, you can kind of break the Gentiles down into Greeks and barbarians. And so he's, Paul is in Corinth, they're Greeks, and so he's kind of emphasizing the Greeks, but including all the rest of the Gentiles. Did they be, separate out the Jews, or the Jews barbarians also? They, they, I don't know what they call them. <laughs> You know, they, they probably looked at the Jews as just being the Jews because they were so separate from them. Yeah. Um, anyways, the Greeks tended to be more of the academic philosopher types. And that's really what Paul's addressing here is, is the philosophers. Um, but, uh, you know, to the, to the Jews, the, the gospel was a stumbling block. They wanted signs. They wanted Moses. To the Greeks, on the other hand, the whole gospel looked foolish to them, ridiculous. And one of the reasons is they were polytheistic. They had a multitude of gods. There wasn't just one god that they had to deal with. There was a whole bunch of gods. And when you look at Greek and Roman mythology, um, it's like a um, soap opera. You know, they were... They were fighting with each other and murdering each other and all this stuff going on. And um, we mentioned uh, Sisyphus a while back. That was he's the um, demigod that was sentenced to spend forever rolling a rock uphill. You know, for what I, whatever he did, I can't remember what that was. But um, he's that one. If you see the picture of the Greek pushing a rock up the hill, that was Sisyphus. Um, the other thing is their concept of religion was really um, to offer sacrifices to the gods to propitiate them so they would not be mad at them and that they would bless whatever it was that you're doing. And I, I did read a uh, biography of Alexander the Great 
And when he started his conquest, they, from Greece he had to cross the, the Bosporus, which is a wide body of water from Europe into Turkey. And it says he, you know, he was on, they stopped the boat out in the middle of the Bosporus and he offered all these sacrifices to, to Neptune and everyone else for, and then he got to, landed on, um, in, in the uh, Asian side and he stopped and offered all the different sacrifices he could to the, the gods he was aware of. Over and over again he did that because he, they would give him success. <clears throat> so that was their idea of religion. Um, so this idea of this Jewish peasant way off in some province of Judea being crucified by the Romans, giving them eternal life, just sounded ridiculous. It didn't fit their understanding of religion at all. It sounded ridiculous. Um, and we can, the best passage we have for that is Acts chapter 17, where, where Paul goes to Athens. And so let's go back and, and we'll read that. Acts chapter 17. And you'll see him talking to the philosophers, and he tries to bridge this gap between the Christian gospel and what they believed. And it was partly successful. Um, but we're going to read, we'll, we'll start in verse 16 and read through... 32. So it's long. So we'll read around again. <clears throat> Acts 17, starting at verse 16, reading through 32. Rumi, you want to start again for us? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as those as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting? Verse 20. So they're waiting for each other. Oh, okay. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> now all the Athenians and foreigners, no, I'm 20. We can some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of Pegasus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even felt an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not need to dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. For one man he made, for one man he made by all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole world, and he marked out the appointees, appointed times in history, and the boundaries of their lands. That they would seek God, 
if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our beings. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine, being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. <coughs> because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having finished proof, furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. Okay, so we see in verse 34 that there were some to believe. But he starts out, Paul's practice was always to go to the Jews first. And, and he, he could talk to them about Jesus as being the prophet, so they had a lot in common. It also talks about the God-fearing Gentiles. Um, but then he goes off and the, the Greek philosophers run into him and say, come on up and wait, this is something new. We want to talk about it. They love just talking about new things and kicking ideas around. And, and so we see Paul trying to bridge this gap between monotheistic Christianity and, and their religions. And, you know, as we're going through this, I, I, I think of all the things we've been learning, learning on Wednesday nights. You know, he starts out by trying to explain who God is. He's the creator. And there's just one God, one overall God. He doesn't really put down so much what they believe as presenting the, the truth to them. Um, and he, you know, he even quotes from their own poets to try to make a connection there, to help them understand. And he's actually just looks like he's doing pretty well until he gets down to the resurrection from the dead. And <laughs> it's like, okay, that's enough. They, they don't believe that. They don't believe in a resurrection. So to them, it just it was a foolish myth. Yeah. So that's so that's how the the Gentiles responded to the gospel. Uh, we could see it there at Athens. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at the next section, verses 24 and 25. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this is how those who are saved perceive the gospel. <coughs> and Paul starts out by saying, um, those who are the called. And this is the third place in um, this book where that word is used. It's used, this word for called, is used three times in the book. It's, this is the third place where it's used. Let's go back to verse chapter 1, verse 1. Someone like to read that for us. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, Sophonis. Okay. Good enough. <laughs> we don't have any 2,000-year-old Greeks around <laughs> to tell us how these words are supposed to be pronounced, so <laughs> whatever you want, we'll go. We'll go with. But here, uh, you know, Paul's called, it, it means, it's using the term appointed. 
is the meaning here in, the, in verse 1. Paul was appointed by God to be an apostle. Now, would someone like to read verse 2 for us? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay, so here's talking to the general uh, group of believers at the church. These are the ones who've responded to what you would call an effectual call. God called them, they believed, and so they were saved. And so there's these two use kind of different usages is how Paul uses the word throughout all his writings. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. one. Romans chapter 1. Yeah, someone like to read verse 1 for us. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so again we see Paul's called to be, he's appointed to be an apostle. Called and appointed. Go back and you look at the Road to Damascus, you know, God picked him out. This is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Um, I don't know if Paul could have said no. <laughs> he, was, he was pretty well face-to-face -face with the sovereign God. And, uh, you don't say no. Um, so he was appointed the apostle. Um, going down further, would someone like to read verses 6 and 7 for us? Romans 1. including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, here they're, they're called to called of Jesus Christ. So again, this is the, the effectual call. He's talking to those who are saved. God's called them, they've believed, they're saved. And that's, what, that's how Paul refers to them as being the called. Um, and it's not just Paul. If you, if you look at the book of Jude, you'll see the same usage also in Revelation. You know, the, when it talks about the called, you're talking about those who responded to an effectual call of God. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And here, if someone would like to read verses 11 through 14 for us. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so here in this parable, Jesus uses that same word called a little bit differently. Yes, this is a general call. Many are called here, but few are chosen, few are picked out. So he uses the word chosen in the same sense that Paul uses the word called. But the ideas are the same. 
there's, there's a general universal call, uh, and we read about that in, in the beginning of uh, Book of Romans. You know, uh, creation is a general call. Um, man's conscience is a general call. We should know that there's a God out there. And so it's a very general call. And many are called. Everyone's called in, in that sense. But few are picked out uh, by God for the, you know, the effectual uh, application of the gospel. Um, you know, and this fits what Christ talks about. You know, the narrow gate, the narrow road that leads to life. And, and most go down the broad way to destruction. Um, let's look at one more place in Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Someone like to read verse 14 for us here. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So here we see both of these terms, called and chosen, and then finally faithful. That has to do with man's response to the gospel. We... We believe the gospel. We have faith in the gospel, and that, and that means we're we're called faithful. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are dependable in doing what we're supposed to do all the time in that sense of being faithful. But it means that we have faith in the gospel, uh, and so we are faithful there. Um, now, this these definitions of called and chosen things. There's there's debate in the in uh, Christianity about exactly what all that means. Um, and my uh, position on that is, um, I, I guess the two extremes is one is universalism, where everybody's saved. Um, the other is uh, in Calvinism, where Christ only died for the elect. So it's very restricted. And I think the truth lies, usually between the two extreme points of view. There's enough passages that talk about, you know, Christ's propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Colossians 1, he's a propitiation. Or, or Christ has sanctified all things. And so there's, there are terms that are universal about his death. But then we also see... Um, you know, in this use of the word called, this specific, there's an effectual call. And so I think um, the terminology is Christ's death is sufficient for all, but effective for the, only the elect. Which means anyone who wants to believe in Christ and be saved can do so. His death is sufficient. That comes back to John 3.16, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. Right. And so it's sufficient in that he, his death is, is good enough for anybody to be saved. But we know the gate is narrow. Only a few actually respond. And so those are the called, the ones where God has to work through his spirit to convict us of our sins, to open our eyes to the gospel, open our hearts, and then we believe and are saved. 
that's where I put things together. And uh, to me, that fits best with all the different passages. But you can disagree. <laughs> so, in our passage, we have the called, and it says both Jews and Greeks. Um, let's go to Romans 9 again. Go back and forth to a lot of different passages. Romans chapter 9. Someone like to read verses 23 and 24. Okay, so, so here we see the called includes Jews and Gentiles. And so here Paul is, you know, the Jews had the idea that, you know, they were God's elect and nobody else was. And, and Paul's saying, no, God also called Gentiles. Um, and so this is a passage in Roman where it talks, Romans about, it talks about God's sovereignty and his um, right to, to call who he wishes. <clears throat> So God has called vessels of mercy from both Jews and Gentiles. And the reason he says Jews and Gentiles is because they come out of these two different groups. We were talking about that the Jews wanted signs, the Gentiles wanted wisdom. And so we've been talking about both groups. And now we see them together in the church. And, and now how do they respond to God's power? So again, looking at... Uh, uh, verse 24, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we looked at this term power of God back in verse 18, but it took God's power to rescue us from the condemnation of sin and our slavery to sin. Um, that was not easy to do. It took God's power to do that. Um, and that was something, again, the Jews were looking for power. Um, and God demonstrated that. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 again. This time, when someone like to read verse 4. And who, through the Spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so God demonstrated his power through the resurrection. Many of the times when the Pharisees would go to Jesus and say, show us a sign, show us a miracle, Jesus would say, all you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Three days in the tomb and then resurrection. That will be the sign of power to you. So that answered the, uh, the Jews' request for, for a power. Now, on the other hand, we see the wisdom of God because God provided a way of salvation that actually worked. I mean, if you, if you go to any of the other religions of the world, do they have a plan of salvation that will help, help you get to heaven and spend eternity with God? Try to be good enough and hope that you get there. Right, you can try to be good enough, yeah. It's just the, it's the main hope. It has no substance. Or, or there's no personal relationship with God. There's just, 
um, reincarnation, and, and depending on how well you do in this life, you come back as a king or an ant, you know, uh, karma thing. I don't know about Buddhism, you know. It is probably middle part. There's nirvana, yeah. Um, but to spend eternity with God, with a holy God in paradise, um, they don't have an answer to that. You know, they don't have a holy and righteous God who demands penalty for sin, plus a God who is so loving that he pays the penalty himself. I mean, that's, they, they have no concept of that. It never came up. Um, and that's, um, that's so contrary to all the wisdom of the world, which is rooted in Satan. Um, when you look at Ephesians 2, um, walk according to the prince of power you know, uh, in the world. Um, so Satan, Satan didn't understand this wisdom. Um, you know, when, when Satan had the chance, when, when Christ was walking on the earth, what did Satan do? He was the enemy of Christ. Christ was his enemy. So what did he do to get rid of his enemy? Judas, Satan did everything he could to put Jesus on that cross because he didn't know what was going to happen. He did not understand God's wisdom. Um, let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Someone would like to read verses 14 and 15 for us. Having canceled out a certificate of debt consisting of decrees against which was hostile to us, he also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And 15 also, please. Oh, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Okay, who are the rulers and authorities? We're not just talking about Pilate and the high priest. These, these terms are often used of Satan. Satan is the god of this world and these are his, his ruling powers. Right, right. So at the cross, he disarms them. Uh, Hebrews tells us that uh, Satan's power over us is the fear of death. Well, Christ died and was resurrected. He broke that fear. We do not have the fear of death. We have the hope of resurrection. So he does not have power. He lost all his leverage. And he didn't know he was doing that. So, um, so that shows the, the glory of, of God's wisdom. Um, I'd written down Romans 11, 33 through 36. This is where Paul has the doxology where he just praises God's wisdom, the inscrutable wisdom of God. Um, and that should be familiar to us. I think we've looked at it before. So you see, man cannot save himself. He does not have the plan nor the power to do so. All human philosophies, all human religions will fail. Um, 
And I suppose, you know, if you're talking to someone in another religion, you can ask them, well, who died for your sins? They, you know, they'd either refuse to believe that Christ did or they wouldn't think about it. Um, Muhammad didn't, Buddha didn't, you know, they don't have a, someone who died for their sins. <coughs> now Paul, his main emphasis as we go through this, it's not so much to put down man as it is to glorify God in, in his plan. Um, so he's shown how God is wiser, more powerful than the most wise and powerful men in the world. And now he's going to have the Corinthians look at their own church body. So he's been talking about these other people. Now he's going to say, now let's look at our church. Verses 26 through 29. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Now my first impression when I read this is the island of misfit toys. Is that in a, what is it? Rudolph the Red Nose, or the elf. I can't remember what the cartoon. Uh, you know, actually, I don't think Paul's being that critical of the Corinthians. He's, I think his his main point is, you're just all regular people. Look at you know. When you know when they're called, they're regular people with all their problems, with all their weaknesses, all their depravity, regular human beings. Um, now, one of the things is you have to think about is I had I've heard that about half of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves, and we also saw historically that when Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth in 46 BC, he filled it with free men from Rome, and free men are those who had been slaves and bought their way out of slavery, so they were uh, socially one step above free men. So they were at the bottom of this social ladder for those who were not slaves. So you tended to have a lot of the lower, lowest class people here in Corinth. Um, so that is kind of something to consider in the background. So when Paul says, consider your calling, he's telling him to think about who God picked to build this church in Corinth. God went and picked these different people. He didn't pick rocket scientists, pro-athletes, senators, billionaires, brain surgeons, movie stars, or royalty. Um, now he does say not many. So there, there was a few there who were, um, I guess, more sophisticated or higher up in the social ladder than, than the most of the rest. Um, they were distinguished in some way, but, but God's merciful to them too. And I, you know, in, in really considering this as we go through this passage, when, when you look at the church body and you've got someone who's really distinguished, 
they ought to be really thankful that God picked them because because <laughs> most of the time, most of the time, yeah, because that's not the general group of people that God wants. God wants those where He shows that He is the one who saves them and makes makes is the power behind the church. Um, so uh, they should be particularly grateful uh, if they if God picks them. So, the types of people we have in verse 26. Uh, we've got the wise, again, that's the Greek intellectuals. We've got the mighty. Um, you might think of someone being politically powerful or, or um, maybe wealthy and having uh, power, economic power. And then finally we have the noble, and that would be aristocrats, wealth, people who are born into... Uh, the upper crust of the um, families. It says there's a few of these people, but God has mainly chosen others. So let's look at what these others are. Yeah. Yes. I was just thinking about when the angel came to the shepherds. I mean, they were lowly. Oh, yeah. They had the most mighty, you know, announcement of anyone. So right. That's I a just very, was thinking that way. Yeah, that's a good point. When you look at Jewish society, the... Shepherds, <laughs> they were, they, yeah, they were, they were not highly thought of. When uh, I read this, I've, I've thought about how people who are, you know, noble or have the world's wealth or intelligence, you know, just like what you said, uh -huh. they, oh, you know, I, I was called too in the same way. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it leaves the door open, not just uh -huh. for the lowest of the low, but for anyone who will come to Christ. And right. then he can glorify himself and may ask different things of them, may ask yeah. more, you yeah. know. Right. And, and, and we have good examples of that. You know, I, I, I mentioned brain surgeon, Ben, Car ben Carson. Ben Carson. Yeah. World renowned brain surgeon, wonderful believer. Right. We, um, we were looking at a couple documentaries about Letourneau. Letourneau, yes, very and, wealthy uh, man. Historically, I was thinking in the perspectives class, we learned about the Moravians. And he was a count in Europe who basically turned his estate over to the church. Yes. And, uh, you know, so there's examples throughout history of, of yeah. people of influence that God uses, but it's for his glory. Right. But we can look around here and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> none, of us, uh, none of us are on the A-list, are we? <laughs> God looks at the heart. God looks yeah, at the heart. The heart. Yeah. Oh, no, let's let's start looking. I already said, we're, you know, we're not the island of misfit toys, but uh, <laughs> we're going through some words that may look it's, that way. It's worthy to think of that example. Or maybe. <laughs> Actually, before I get it, maybe we should stop now. Um, it's about time to end, anyways. And that's, that this opens another whole can of worms. When we start to just actually going into detailed descriptions of, yeah, let's look at ourselves. What are we? we are, huh? Yeah. So we'll, we'll save that for next time, I guess. This is a good place to make that break. Uh, it's enough to say we don't, haven't got any movie stars in here. <laughs> Leave it at that for now. So, Joe, you're good at this. Why don't you close in prayer? Sure. Okay. Dear Lord, thank you for this time we can gather and open your word to see what it has for us. We just thank you the way it speaks to us on a personal and in-depth basis. We look at it as historical facts also, but 
but it's a living word that speaks on to us on individual time and in, in our lives and on an individual basis. We thank you for that. We pray that we'll follow the directions that the word has for us, that we'll be obedient to the callings you put out before us, that we'll strive to follow those footsteps so laid out that as we walk that path that you have laid out for us. Thank you for this hour, for the next hour to come, that Robert brings a message. We just want to thank you for the time we can can have come here and have a worshipful mind and a worshipful attitude as we sit and listen to what you have for us. In your first name, pray. Amen. Amen.